baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Even as the economy gets better for people in the upper middle and at the top, man, it's tough if you are on the bottom or in the middle, struggling with groceries, the cost, inflation, the struggles of life. And hunger is a key part of that. You know, if you're if you're not fed, you're not focused on taking care of your family. You're not focused on work. Kids aren't focused on learning. It is one of those foundational things. Today, uh, I was part of the effort for Second Harvest Heartland, which is one of the largest food banks in the country. It is our food bank here in uh, this part of Minnesota. And we want to make hunger history. We want to cut hunger in half in Minnesota, in half. By 2030. It's big. It's big. And the CEO of Second Harvest Heartland, Allison O'Toole, is with us on the John Schuster Coldwell Banker Hotline to talk a little bit about what this exactly means, how we're going to measure it, and how our listeners can get involved in being a part of it. Allie, thanks for being us. How how, how big is this uh, moment today? Thanks for having me on, Jason, and thanks for your support. This is a pivotal moment for our community, and I think we have a a once-in-a-generation opportunity to make hunger history in Minnesota um, and come together as a community and get this done once and for all. So I think it is is a pivotal moment. Um, Food shelf visits have been on the rise the last few years. They've doubled since 2021. The status quo is not an option, and that's what leads to today. Part of what uh, makes this, I think, a little challenging for people to get their arms around is because when you think about fighting (laughs) hunger, perhaps you think about providing emergency food, right? The food shelves all around the state. Second Harvest Heartland is sort of the, the hub of the system where we bring in donations, we buy food, distribute that out. But... Explain how the data indicates that, you know, I like to say we can't feed our way out of hunger. So explain kind of what we're looking at that shows that. That's right. And I think it's, you know, the important, like the crux of this uh, initiative um, and this way of thinking is that food banks and the emergency system are only part of the solution. I think the biggest lever we have um, are policy changes really smart policy changes. You think about what's in place already with universal school meals, a state-funded tax credit. We saw both those policies reduce, during COVID, reduce child poverty by 40% almost overnight. And so when you think about what we do, you're right, Jason, we can't feed our way out of this. We have to think more broadly and more collaboratively about how we get at this issue. And that's that's sort of the big part of this, right, where you take an operation like Second Harvest Heartland, which is really focused on being super efficient 
and and innovative in ways to make sure we get like fresh produce and culturally relevant food to uh, different parts of the state that are looking for those kind of things. So we've been working on that. But at the same time, you sort of look at the information. You're like, man, if all we do is just keep cranking out food, we know hunger is going to continue to grow. So at a certain point, you say, like, how much food can we can we buy? Is it even realistic to produce this level of food if we don't address some of the root causes, which is kind of scary. But that's what we have to do, right? That's what we have to do. It's scary, but it's doable, Jason. We have, I'm going to go on my Minnesota, um, like, fan mode here. We have one of the most generous states in the country. We also have one of the most collaborative states in the country. We come together as a community to rally when we need to. And we really need to. We're at a crisis point right now. And so I think, you know, not only can we do it, but when you um, think about the issue, it's more than just those day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month emergency boxes of fresh veggies and um, protein that we hand out. We have to look at some of the systemic changes. And some of those are the root causes, transportation, housing, other things like that. Also, connecting families to the SNAP program. SNAP is otherwise known as food stamps, and SNAP has nine times our power. So I'll give you an example. Last year, we distributed about 130 million meals to our community. SNAP has nine times that power. And so we need to invest in programs like that that actually uh, help Um, provide stability to families in a different way than those just monthly or weekly food boxes. That emergency food is so important, especially right now. But we're going to get to the bottom of this. We have to think more broadly. Allison O'Toole is the CEO of Second Harvest Heartland. Are you worried? Part of the beauty of Second Harvest Heartland is that no matter what your politics are, everyone supports the idea of getting food to people who are in need. When you start talking about policy changes, are you worried that that makes the organization like, well, are you guys, uh, are you a left-wing organization? Are you a right, whatever the case may be, are you worried about wading into politics in this way? So we are a nonpartisan organization, Jason, and we will always be that. And What we know is that hunger is a unifying issue, Um, not only for this community, but honestly, at the federal level, some of the, um, you know, you think about Congress right now and how slow it is to uh, change and enact policies. They're talking about a child tax credit in Congress right now. That is music to our ears. So I think when you think about the issue of your neighbors having stocked fridges or food on the table after a long day at work and school, it's something people can all get around. And so we, we will never be partisan. We're always going to be nonpartisan. I really think this is an issue that can bring the community together. It already has. And you've seen, I mean, I've been over there at Second Harvest when Tom Emmer has come through. I mean, uh, you know, politicians of both parties come and tour, uh, come and talk to you. 
So I am optimistic that we can find policy solutions that really ultimately you're talking about attacking the issue of poverty. That is that is the root issue here, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. And we are so honored and proud to host anyone who wants to come through our doors, honestly, Jason. And, you know, Congressman Emmer um, has been here a number of times, even before we opened in 2020 at this new campus. And, um, you know, what is important uh, with no matter who you're talking with, probably not always going to be in alignment on every every single thing. The important part from my perspective is to keep an open conversation about the reality on the ground. And we do that with our entire federal delegation. We've got good relationships there and we'll work hard to keep them. Again, I think this is a unifying issue. Is this is it when you talk about and we're talking with Allison O'Toole, Second Harvest Heartland, when you talk about policies that can really make a difference when it comes to hunger, is this is this largely at the state level or uh, does it get bigger where you say, no, this is, you know, it's it's farm bill, it's federal, uh, it's federal issues as well? Well, one of the main messages today was that we need everyone at the table, and that means state government. We can um, our state can come to the table in a different way by supporting food banks and food shelves, but also those root causes of poverty and by enacting, you know, the child tax credit and universal school meals. So important. An even bigger policy lever is at the federal level. And I hope, um, you know, we are waiting for a farm bill to be reauthorized. Um, We work with the Feeding America Network to advocate for a strong farm bill, which includes, you know, like 80 or 90 percent of the farm bill is nutrition programs that impact food insecurity and the hunger issue. So it is critically important. It is a massive piece of legislation. And we sure hope it gets done. We're going to work hard to make sure it does. But both levels of government are really critical. You announced two major gifts from foundations uh, and corporations today. The Cargill Foundation with $10 million, Target with $10 million. Is there a fundraising goal? And does this sort of throw down the gauntlet for other Minnesota corporations and foundations to step up? Well, we hope it is an invitation to everyone to step up. Oh, I like that. You say that. Individuals. You say that so much nicer than me. <laughs> I like the challenges out there. Like, I'm going to start calling out the companies by name. You call it an invitation. I mean, that's why that. you run the. That's and why now, you. That's right. That's why you're the CEO, and I'm. I'm the talk show host. <laughs> well, you. If we team up to handle our talking points together we're gonna we're gonna it could be magic you could be the good cop i'll be Um, the bad cop i think it works out fine yeah Yeah. i mean i think what we saw today is cargill and target stepping up and we are so excited for others to step up we need everyone at the table and to your listeners who are um, wondering how they can help everyone can help we need your time your voices um, your dollars, if you have, uh, you know, the money to give, you can give it to us. You can give it to your local food shelf, too. It all makes a difference. But when I think about <clears throat> a huge goal, this is, you know, the, the gifts today reflect the enormity of the issue we face as a community. It's going to require a significant investment. 
And the range we are working with right now is between 150 and $250 million. We are going to know more as we dive into this. We will keep communicating about it. But again, the enormity of the issue, this requires huge investment um, to turn around. How do, we, how do we track it? How do we know if, if we did it by 2030? Well, so we're tracking right now. Um, we talked about food shelf visits today. And that has, you know, I said um, the number has doubled since 2021. Um, and last year we saw 7.5 million visits to food shelves. Seven and a half million, Jason. It's unconscionable. That is what we're tracking today. We're going to work really hard uh, over the next 12 months. And a year from now, we're going to release a Make Hunger History scorecard so we can track our progress as a community towards this goal. And it's going to be a lot more sophisticated and a lot more current. Um, you know, and it's, it's a complicated issue which requires a comp- complex and sophisticated measurement. And that's what we're going after. Uh, I'm excited for today to get this out in the world and the universe. And the fact that we had the governor and the lieutenant governor there to me indicates that our, our political leaders believe, as you do, that this is doable, that this isn't just like a rhetorical goal, that this is something that will happen. I think it will. And I, you know, we'll be the first state in the country to, to come together and get it done once and for all, Jason, we can do that as a community here in Minnesota. We've done it before. Um, We have enough resources. We have the brightest minds in the country, in my opinion, in our community, and we're going to get this done. Yeah. Um, Well, we'll help. We'll help on Thursday with uh, let's kick hunger day out at headquarters all day, we'll be raising money. So uh, it's an exciting week uh, for something important to all of us, I think. Yeah. And thanks so much for everything you do, Jason. Thank I, I do uh, next to nothing, but thank you, Allie. <laughs> I just, I love to spread the word of the great work that everybody's doing over there. So, so we appreciate it and we'll, well see you guys. You. We'll see you on Thursday. Sounds good. Thanks so much. Allison O'Toole, 423. Back in just a minute with traffic and weather here on CCO. Well, Minneapolis liberals are going to liberal, right? Like left-wing Minneapolis. Here's the outrage of the weekend. Powderhorn Park had an art sled rally this weekend, and because there's no snow to have r- real sleds, they had, like, little cardboard sleds that they kind of sent down, a, I don't know, like a little... Mud pile? Mud pile, I guess. <laughs> and one of the sleds was a replica of the 3rd Police Precinct in Minneapolis burning. Why? Because people are idiots. And so in a simpler time... Idiots in Powderhorn Park would have done their stupid little thing, got their little, got their laugh, got their high fives from other people who hate the police, and that would be the end of it. But because of social media, oh, yeah. the video of this thing goes online, and the police chief sends an email, Fox 9 reporting on this email that he sent out late Saturday night, 
saying he was, quote, outraged and frustrated by the disgusting display. He called it appalling. Make no mistake, the burning of the third precinct station house set off a signal of lawlessness that resulted in the highest levels of violence to our most vulnerable residents, wrote the chief. I mean, I don't want to nitpick, but I think Derek Chauvin killing a man is what set off the highest levels of violence. But I also did not care for the burning of the third police force. Sure. Sometimes you have to just let it go. Yeah. It is easy to jet up outrage about this, for sure. Who cares? It's an art sled. Is it a newsflash that some people are happy that the third precinct was set on fire? No. In fact, it's been such an issue that they haven't done a dang thing to the spot. So we know that people are still upset about it. Now, I think there is blame on people who refuse to let it go, including the people who, like, do this sort of a dumb thing. And there's blame to the fact that I don't think the police have ever adequately given the community an apology, a genuine reaction of saying, you know, our goal is safety. Our goal is improving the community. And we failed you. And we are working so hard to right the ship. And part of writing the ship is letting it go when some ding-dongs in Powderhorn Park try to get you going. I do think the ability to not let the trolls of the world get you going is something we should want from our leaders. And I like Chief Brian O'Hara. I think he's doing a good job. I think he's set a good tone. He's he's, uh, presided over some nice improvements that we've seen. In the police department. But man, I wish he'd just let this go. You're just, you're giving the people who want to see you mad exactly what they want. It's just a, it's just a sled. It's some, it's, Powderhorn Park is like the center of the Minneapolis socialist universe. And to get upset about something like that, I don't know. I think it's, so, it borders on pathetic. Right? Toughen up. You think the snowflakes are the socialists and the people crying on social media about every perceived slight or injustice. Well, how about the police chief here? It's pretty, pretty weak. You're, you're welcome to disagree with me at 651-461-9226. Texts are welcome. We'll revisit this maybe at the top of the hour. But in just a minute, it is our Monday message. Dan Cook working in advance of this Sunday's uh, church service. Dan's got a message for all of us, and we'll hear it in just a minute here on CCL. 
baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Dan is here working in advance of this week's sermon. Yeah, this one's a little different. This one, uh, you're workshopping. We do, yeah, well, not, I mean, kind of, yeah. I'm working on it. Uh, usually when we do this, this is a sermon that I preach the day before. Right. This is going to be me working on a sermon that I'm going to preach this coming Sunday. But it's connected to a discussion that we had two weeks ago. It is. For those, uh, for those of you that were listening a couple of weeks ago, we talked about discerning a call. Discerning, you know, how you figure out if this thing that's starting to consume your life a little bit or starting to feel like something you should be doing is something you should actually be doing. Is this something, you know, if you're a believer, is this something that God is pushing you to do? Um, and we talked about different ways to go about doing that and, and various scriptural references in that. So this week, when I start talking about this passage from the Gospel of Mark, we're going to be talking more about you've discerned that call. The call came. call came. You've recognized that this is. You believe this is. Now what do you do? Right. So we're in this season of Epiphany. We're in this season in the liturgical calendar where we're talking about Jesus revealing who he was and his ministry while he was here on earth. And that comes, obviously, right on the heels of you know Advent and then Christmas and the birth and Jesus' incarnation into the world. And now, you know, who's he going to be? What is, what is he doing that is there for us to reference? And specifically in the Gospel of Mark, one of the interesting tensions is Mark is the shortest of the four Gospels. And so it's paced very quickly. Where, you know, Jesus does a thing and then does another thing and then does another thing and then does another thing. Mark likes to get right to he the point. He wants to get right to the point. Yeah. And yet, through that story, Jesus is constantly telling people, don't, don't tell anybody what's going on yet. We're not, we're not there yet. We're not there yet. Why? Why is it? As he's slow, why is he holding back the reins on revealing who he is and why he's here? What is it, his call to yeah. be here in, in the flesh? And the reason is that people at that time had an expectation of what the Messiah was going to be. And that wasn't the Messiah Jesus came to be, mm. right? People were expecting another Davidic warrior king, somebody that was going to overthrow the the Roman government by violence and take control and fight the good fight and put the right people, scare quotes, the right people back on top. That wasn't who Christ came to be. And so he knows if he reveals himself too early, too quickly, people are going to try and make him a king. People are going to try and insert him into the political discussion in the mm. ways he has no business being want, in, yeah. the, in the political discussion. So you have this scene at the close to the end of Mark chapter 1. This is what I'm going to be preaching on this weekend where he goes to the house of Simon and Andrew, uh, two, of his, two of his apostles. And Simon's mother-in-law is there, Simon Peter. His mother-in-law is there, and she's very sick. And Jesus picks her up, and in that so doing, heals her. Very quick yeah. miracle, just boom, picked her up, healed her. And it says, it says even in the Scripture, and she immediately started serving. She immediately started cooking dinner, right? Yeah, right. That's exactly what you we know, have. If I healed someone, that's exactly what I yeah, would Yeah, make me dinner, right? Yeah. If you're and if you're somebody who's just been healed, what you know, I mean, take a nap, right? But, <laughs> yeah, take no, a break. She gets up, she no. right? In the story, so yeah. this word gets out among in, in the town. It was Capernaum. The word gets out, and suddenly everybody who's got an ailment is showing up. Sure. 
And so you, and Jesus starts healing people. Okay. And that's the first thing when we talk about what do you do when the call comes? First thing is to lean into it, right? Jesus performs this miracle healing this woman. And that could have been what form of the proclamation he wanted to take. Right. right? He's here to proclaim the, the arrival of the kingdom. I'm of here. Right. So you can do that by saying it or you can do that by living it out. Okay. He's choosing early on the living it out portion. All right. And he could have just done that with Peter's mom, right? Here, look at this miracle. This is the kind of thing that can happen in the kingdom of God. But he says, no, that's not – I'm not going to just do that. The people that shows up, he heals person after person after person. It says hyperbolically the whole city showed up. Well, obviously the whole city didn't show up. But you've sure. been in situations where it feels like the whole city's there, right? And that's what it felt like in this moment. He, but he leans into it. Got it. If you're going to have a call, if you're going to do a thing, don't do it halfway. If this is really a call, if this is really like a big deal part of your life, as scary as it may be, lean in. Okay. Do the darn thing. Don't do it halfway. That's the first portion of what we right. see here. But what's interesting is and then scene turns, right? He heals all these people, and it says the next morning he gets up before anybody else and he goes out to a, de- a deserted place or an isolated place, depending on the translation you want to use. And praise. And that's the second thing, is that, yes, lean into it. Give yourself fully over to this thing, and don't forget to rest. That that word that talks about isolated or talks about wilderness Mm -hmm. is the same word when we talk about Jesus going off to the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. It's the same word. So there's not really a wilderness place about Capernaum, so he wasn't going to the same kind of place. But the point of going to the place was the same thing. Because as he's healing all these people, of course, here could come the fame, right? All these people show up. Everybody knows who he is. Everybody knows what he's doing. And that could be tempting, right, to take you off. He's not here to be famous. He's not here to be a political leader. That's not not the call. That's not what he's trying to do. But that could derail him. Sure, right. right? So what does he do? He goes to the quiet place. He goes to the place, at least mentally speaking, that where he was tempted before. So is the idea to rest in order to keep yourself focused on what the call actually yes. is? Yes. yes. To not get caught up in what you're doing. So you lean in. You lean in. You rest you and you focus. You make sure that you rest. You make sure you have yeah. time. You make sure that has, I mean, there's energy level to that course, too, yeah. right? Jesus, I, I like to claim Jesus was an introvert. I think he really truly did. You, you, you see might it throughout be projecting. The Are you projecting There's yourself? some projection, absolutely. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm not obviously comparing myself. But being an introvert, yeah, I might be projecting. But you do see multiple times in various Gospels yeah. him going off to be alone because he needs that time to recharge. He's a fully human being. He needs right. that time to recharge. So both physical rest and mental focus are a part of it. That's the first two things. The third thing, his disciples then come and find him as he's off praying and resting. And they say, hey, everybody's back in town is still looking for you. And he says, nope, now it's time to go. Now we've got other places we've got to visit. So the third thing is to remember what your call actually is hmm. because those, right. those sidetrack things are going to be there. And look, it would be a good thing if he stayed in Capernaum and just kept healing people, right? People could come from all over Galilee to be healed. Those are, that's a good yeah. thing, right? But it's not why he's here. It's not what the call is. The call is to proclaim you know, the coming of God's kingdom to everybody. And so he's got to travel and he's got to go to different towns and he's got to be present for people in their city, in their place, where they're at in their lives, not just stay in one place and let everybody come to him. Now, most of us, when we're called to do something, it's not like Jesus was called or it's not like you uh, answered a call. It may be a spiritual call, but it may not, right? 
Or is it always, well, or do you think when it's a call, it's always something? Well, my faith would say that when you really have that major thing in your life, that's a call from God. Yeah. Right? Not everybody shares my faith. I, I Sure. You know, that's kind of half the point of this segment. But what I would say is whatever spirituality you have, there's a Venn diagram of that spiritual life and your practical, pragmatic life. Right. And we tend to try and pull those circuits, circles apart. And my point is, no, those circles need to overlap hmm. actually more. So if someone feels a call, say, like, I feel like, you know, I'm a, I'm a teacher right now yeah. and I'm feeling a call to go to medical school. Sure. Is that, do you, because I think that's how most of us think about getting a call, yeah. right? Yeah. No, and I don't, see, to me. And do you apply that same sort of I thing? I apply the same sort of thing because I don't view, you know, I'm a, I'm a radio producer and I got called to also be a pastor. Yeah. And I'm balancing those two things right now in my life and maybe yeah. that balance shifts as time goes by. I don't see that as being any different than, you know, you're in one position in your life and you're being called to try something else. Yeah. Your, your life was headed this way, and you're being called to head this other way. I think, you know, when you discern that correctly, that's to me, that's coming from God. But it could, you know, however you want to discern it. Right, you want to discern right. It. Well, the, the source is, of it maybe isn't the biggest thing for folks. It's how do the you— The approach is, is, to me, the same. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I know. I would approach it absolutely the same way. Interesting. It's cool. Yeah. That's the Monday message. The Monday message. Thanks, Dan. Your thoughts always welcome at 651-461-9226. Well, not not all of yours. <laughs> uh, we'll take a break and do weather and traffic together next here on CCO. Well, we're all watching what is going on overseas right now. We've got a drone strike that killed a three U.S. service members in Jordan on Sunday. You know they game plan this, right? Like with all that's going on in the world right now, what do we do if this happens? And what do you do if you are... United States. You have to strike back, right? The New York Times is writing about this today. They say the options range from the unsatisfying to the highly risky. So do you go after Iran and the suppliers of drones and missiles, perhaps, since this was a drone missile attack? Do you strike? Who do you strike? What do you do? Are you opening another front on the war? Are you I mean you can't just let you just you can't just let Iran kill three US servicemen. This drone strike is Indicative of really the part of the world that has been the absolute pain in the butt for the United States and for the West for, well, my entire life. The Middle East and now, I mean, this drone strike, this, I mean, it definitely brings into perspective some of the new technology that's out there in warfare. You know, here this from everything I've been reading about this attack in Jordan on Sunday, you know, 34 injured, this Iran-backed militia. And as always, you're like trying to trace who is what and who belongs to what country and who's backing who and who's a terrorist and who's a government actor and what is all happening is challenging. But it seems pretty clear, you know, and these are reservists. These these service members who were killed are are 
I mean, that just breaks your heart, too. You look at uh, the pictures of these three, and they're just young uh, military reservists. I mean, it could be any one of our neighbors over there. So you have to you have to fight back. You have to fight back. Um, but I don't know what sort of stomach Americans have for opening up another front on a war over there and sending more Americans into harm's way. It's not good. It is not good on this Monday. Um, We're going to do CBS News. I'll update you on that a lot more in just a minute. Plus, Susie Jones with local news. Dave Schwartz will join us at uh, 530 as well. So lots coming up here on uh, a day that's way too hot. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 